Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. I am Kara Kandel here with the fantastic Gerard Robinson as we roll into this month of July. Gerard, how was your Independence Day? It was fun. It was spent sitting on a couch watching Hamilton with my wife and two younger daughters. Uh, my wife uh, had a chance to see it live in New York because I bought a purchased a ticket for her to see it live. And then her and the other two ladies went to see uh, a rendition in Richmond. So to see it on television, to see it with the But it was your cast, first time? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so you have to share now impressions. What did you think? I've seen it. I've full disclosure. I've probably, I've seen it a lot <laughs> and my, and I might, I might have most of the songs memorized. So we too were watching that. This weekend. <laughs> but, so what, what did you think? What, what did, what was your impression? Well, you know, I'm a fan of the colonial era. So it was good to see the story of our founding spoken through, uh, spoken through rhyme and spoken yep. word and rap. So that was unique. Uh, I learned a heck of a lot more about Hamilton than I really knew before. Basic stuff, yeah, I kind of knew about his biography. But I, you know, by the time I finished, I realized, wow, there's a lot I don't know, and now I have an interest in learning more. And then it was good to see um, the cast really take on the roles. I mean, these were young people, young meaning most of them under 45, I'm assuming, but they really took Probably on under 25, role. Gerard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm giving a long I think I think we have a skewed view of the, you know, you have, we oh, of what young is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm in my fifties, you're in your thirties. So yeah, I understand how that yeah. works. Yeah. Thirties. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yes, yeah, so I walked away with an appreciation and then for the girls, particularly, you know, getting ready to go to independence day was to put into perspective that, uh, that generation with all the challenges they brought to the table made it possible for us to sit in a comfortable air conditioned home to watch it, you know, 200 plus years later. Yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. I had never seen, so watching the movies the first time I saw the original cast and I just, Mm. um, the performances, I mean, you know, it, you can you can read what um, what Lin Manuel Miranda has to say about the liberties he took with the story, or mm-hmm. you know, some critique of of the things perhaps that that um, people would have liked him to delve into more instead of overlooking. It is just hard to ignore, though. I think the impact that this um, production has had on our culture. It's hard to ignore. I, I mean, just seeing the actors, as you said own those roles and sort of flipping, like being true to that era and the historical narrative, but flipping it on his head in terms of seeing um, people of color in these roles. And Mm -hmm. the performances are just mind blowing. I'm sorry, Leslie Odom Jr. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. And I could, I could listen, I probably have listened to the soundtrack um, a thousand times, which might be a little bit embarrassing, but that's okay. I'm going to own it. So, but, but just, yeah, good weekend. We were, we were right there with you. Also spending a little time on the shores of Lake Michigan though, which was pretty normal. This is uh, one of my favorite places. Did you, I, were, you yeah, allowed, were you guys allowed to have fireworks? Um, well, I think there's a difference between folks being allowed to have fireworks and folks actually, you know, like setting them off, um, where my family spends time, which is in a pretty remote part of Northern Michigan. I don't think anybody knows except your neighbors. If you're setting up, 
<laughs> so there were fireworks, all to say. But you know, and the other mm-hmm. thing is, is that where we are in Michigan, it doesn't get dark until about ten twenty at night this time of year. Wow! So as a woman with a three-year-old and a six-year-old and a ten-year-old, I mean, the three-year-old just—I'm—I'm I'm dying over here. Like, go to bed. But so the the fireworks were going off until about. You know, they didn't start until 1030. So we, wow. it was Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. One of the special parts of the north, right? The yep. northern part of the country. What, how about you? Are you a fireworks guy? I'm a fireworks guy, but this year we did absolutely no fireworks. Um, we went outside and looked in the air and, you know, saw a few here or there, but no, we didn't do it. Um, I grew up as a kid with fireworks, moving to Virginia. Uh, even though I found out later some of the areas that I lived and was, you know, Throwing firecrackers and other goodies was illegal, but uh, didn't know that until after the fact. But yeah, not this year. Um, <laughs> didn't know that until after the fact. Might not have cared until after that, but that's okay. <laughs> exactly. So that made, it, made the fourth a little different, but fun. Yeah, everything's a little different this year, isn't it? Yep. And uh, to bring us back to reality, I mean, so here we are, you know, we knew we would get to this place, Gerard, in the spring, we were discussing the, oh, my goodness, what's going on. And now here we are, at, like, in real serious discussion about what school's going to look like in the fall. And just serious anxiety in a lot of places about um, what school's going to look like in the fall. So here, a story from, from AP, debates turn emotional as schools decide how and if to open. I mean, I'm just going to, I'm going to highlight a few things from these articles, you know, from this article. I think it's like, I I cannot imagine, I kept saying before, I can't imagine what it would like to be, what it would be like to be a commissioner of education or governor in this time, but to just be a superintendent or a school principal, Mm -hmm. it's just, you're never going to make everybody happy. And, and how can you know what the right decision is going to be? So like we look at a state like, like Florida right now, where, you know, I think that the emphasis is definitely on getting people back to school for various reasons. And, and let's be clear, a lot of parents need that in, in many ways. But now, unfortunately, so many places across the South, including Florida, are seeing a surge in the number of new cases, raising real mm-hmm. questions about what's safe for kids, what's safe for the adults that are going to be with kids, and what's safe for the adults that the kids are going to go back to. And, and what it's coming down to in so many places is trying to strike this balance between um, what the state can tell you to do and local authorities being able to make their own decisions. And I think It's so much of this hinges on, you know, we're seeing report after report that virtual education wasn't what it needed to be in too many places. So the push, I mean, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, is saying get kids back in school for various reasons, including their mental health and socialization, et cetera. But we're still wrestling with these really huge questions about what's safe. I'm really curious to know what your take is, Gerard, on how do you strike that balance between the state providing the right guidance, but local leaders still being empowered to make the decisions that are right for kids and for and for the families that they serve in particular. What do you think? Local leaders matter a lot in this situation because even in, for example, the western part of the state versus the eastern part of the state, because of the topography because of the demographics of the population, because of access to health care. It's in the same state, and so we can give state guidance. But in a situation like this, I would say local matters. And so this is where I would listen to a school board leader, superintendent, public health official, 
uh, mayor and others. Takes nothing away from state chiefs, takes nothing away from governors, but the fact that you have multiple counties and states or cities, it's for a reason, and it speaks to the uniqueness. So here's one where I would say local, maybe in a different time, I would have uh, gone a different route, but here I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean with the locals and tell the states maybe on this one, we've gotta do more listening and less dictating. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that's right. Well, speaking of state and local, Thomas Sowell, who is a scholar at the Hoover Institute, turned 90, and he published one, another book. 90. I did, and writing a book. <laughs> right. We have people who are half of age, uh, who aren't as active, yeah. who may be in an academic setting, but he's active at 90. His latest book, uh, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. I look forward to reading it. I own at least 12 of his books. He is not only a good writer, but he makes you go, hmm, I had not thought about that. For those of you who do not know about Dr. Thomas Sowell, yes, he's at the Hoover uh, Institute. He's been there for a very long time, but had very humble beginnings in New York City. Uh, Many people probably would not know that he did not finish high school. Uh, He had to take an exam to- Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, get his GED. Uh, and then later went to start his academic career at uh, my alma mater, Howard University in D.C., and then transferred to Harvard. And he had a conversation with uh, Dr. Sterling, who was a professor, or I should say Professor Sterling Brown, who was an English professor at Howard and who was a graduate of Harvard. And he tapped Dr. Sowell before he left in, just simply Tom Sowell. He said, when you go to Harvard, I don't want to hear you come back telling me that you didn't make it up there because people said something about your race or made you feel bad about yourself. You're smart. You go up there. You get it done. And so he moved to Boston, graduated from Harvard. And remember, he's in classes with people who finished with higher academic credentials, finished on time, and then later went to Columbia, earned a Ph.D., and Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate, uh, refers to him as one of his uh, favorite students. Well, on a very interesting podcast uh, with Peter Robinson, who runs on Common Knowledge. Peter worked in the Bush and Reagan White House as a speechwriter, and they just talked about what it's like at 90. And so I would recommend that people go to National Review and go to the corner, and under education, you'll see uh, the link there. But He is a treasure, uh, unfortunately, because he is a conservative and black uh, in many parts of the country, but particularly in my community, that is tantamount to race treason. And so he is often poo-pooed, but I would say... Oh, his work is so important. His work is so, so important. I'm, I'm with you. I can't wait to read this next book. I'm going to go and listen to the podcast that you suggest. We're also going to, um, like, maybe we can make a plea right now to have him come and talk to us as well, if, if you're listening. You're here. <laughs> Dr. Soul, if you're listening. Okay. Well, Gerard, coming up after this, uh, I, I know you know how excited I am. I know you're excited, but we're going to be talking to our good friend, uh, somebody who, um, he was my dissertation 
education advisor, very special guy uh, to me, Dr. Charles L. Glenn. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast and you've ever, you know, done anything uh, related to school choice and school choice policy, I'm sure you've read at least one of his like, what, 110 books. I don't know. I don't know how this man writes as much as he does, mm-hmm. but he does. It, it's pretty amazing. So we'll be back with Dr. Glenn right after this. And listeners, we're back. I'm so happy to say that we are back with um, my mentor, my friend, Gerard's friend, um, the great Charles L. Glenn. He is the Professor Emeritus of Educational Leadership and Policy Studies at Boston University. And from 1970 to 1991, he was Director of Urban Education and Equity for the Massachusetts Department of Education. Glenn has published more than a dozen books, way more than a dozen books, I think, on historical and comparative dimensions of educational freedom and on the education of immigrant and racial minorities, most recently Muslim Educators in American Communities in 2018. He co-edited a four-volume work with chapters on 65 national systems of education, now available for free download from Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. And that is just a very, 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 very condensed biography of all of the work that you have done, Dr. Glenn. So we hope to talk about it today. Thank you so much for being with Gerard and with me here on The Learning Curve. It's fun. It's, we're going to have a lot of fun. I mean, how could, it, how could we not have fun talking about school choice, um, among other things? <laughs> so I've had the privilege of working with you for many years at Boston University and, in fact, traveling to various countries to learn about school choice under your um, mentorship. And I, I, so I have the privilege of knowing a little bit about how you came um, to, well, be the author of so many books and to be such an ardent advocate. You have, you have testified, I, I don't know how many times in school choice cases um, and really been a leader in this movement, even cited in, um, in uh, Justice Alito's uh, recent opinion uh, in, in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. But let's go back to the beginning. So we read in your bio that from 1970 to 1991, you were the director of urban education and equity for the Massachusetts Department of Education. How did you go from there to being a professor at Boston University and one of the leading voices for educational freedom in the world? Well, Kara, there was nothing theoretical about my uh, becoming a supportive school choice. Initially, of course, as, a, as the person who was desegregating the Boston schools and other school systems, uh, I tried to limit choice because what we, we wanted to do was to uh, assign kids to schools in ways that were racially integrated. And that's why we had, of course, 1974, the big blow up in Boston with implementing the plan that I developed to desegregate the Boston schools. Now, how I'd gotten into that job was that in the 60s, I had been an inner city minister in Roxbury in the black community in Boston and had been involved in the freedom movement. I was in jail in 63 in North Carolina. I was at Selma when we walked across that bridge and all that kind of stuff. So I had been very much involved with those issues. But in, in my government role, my main my main effort was to try to have kids go to the schools that 
we assigned them to so those schools would be racially integrated. My own seven kids all went to the Boston public schools because I didn't feel in conscience I could not have them attend schools when I was forcing other parents to send their kids. But uh, we began to see that we could lessen the resistance by creating magnet schools and other kinds of voluntary options to achieve the same integration without forced assignment to a particular school. So initially, it was just an expedient. It was just a way to achieve our goal of racial racial desegregation. What we found, however, was that it it began to have a really uh, reviving effect on a lot of urban schools in Boston and other cities that school people responded to the challenge of having to persuade parents that that uh, they should send their children. Schools became more focused and distinct. Um, and and uh, school folks began to listen to feedback from parents, which particularly in urban schools was unheard of. So it began to really, really have an effect on, on the quality of education. And so we began to see it as valuable in itself, in its own right, um, to, to such an extent that eventually we moved in about a dozen cities in Massachusetts to make school choice universal among public schools. That is, we abolished all attendance zones and all the kids attended schools on the basis of a choice process uh, under racial integration guidelines. Um, so that was, all that was very exciting and, and it made me a supporter of choice just as a mechanism, not as a principle. But by about 1990, this, this was occurring in the 70s and, and 80s, by about 1990, we began to hit a brick wall. Um, we began to find that some schools never improved and that some kids had to be assigned involuntarily because we had to send them someplace. That's when I, I learned about these experiments in Minnesota with the idea of charter schools. And so I, I became a strong advocate then for the idea of creating new kinds of schools so that, that the same dynamic we had, had observed uh, could, could be extended more, more broadly. Uh, and, uh, and so the charter schools um, were, uh, we found were also beginning to produce superior results for black and Latino kids. So it was really just through that process which I've described that, that I became a strong supporter. It was only later that the issues of religious freedom and so forth began to be important for me. Dr. Glenn, it's Gerard, how are you? Good. You mean, you brought up a very interesting point about your work and your history, really looking at Roxbury. Um, when I hear your story, all of a sudden I thought about Project Exodus, uh, right. in Boston, which led ultimately to the uh, the Metco program, um, one of the old right. voluntary programs. Right. I was in charge of Metco, and I provided the funding for Exodus. So yeah, in fact, Alan Jackson of Exodus was the first person I hired when I started my new job. But I'm sorry so, to interrupt you. Oh no, no, it, it all flows in well because you move from the '60s to the '90s. So let's. Uh, leap forward to 2020. Um, we had the Espinosa decision. 
And I'd like for you, given your roles in government and research and education, how do you relate Espinoza to the discussion about racial justice? Well, it, obviously it's not as direct as the relationship to education, to, to religious freedom, which is and freedom of conscience, which is also very important and Espinoza protects. But, but in its practical effect, I think it's going to result, I hope it's going to result in many hundreds of effective urban Catholic schools and, and other urban schools with a faith orientation being um, sustained and not going out of business uh, because it'll be clear that government can no longer discriminate against those schools. I'm very hopeful we're going to begin to see faith-based charter schools as Checker Finn and I and others have been arguing for a long time, mm-hmm. because um, uh, faith-based schools have a particular virtue that they they have a clear focus, and they clearly um, em- emphasize sort of a shared culture, which is very difficult for an ordinary district public school to do. And that shared culture turns out, according to the researchers, to be particularly important for black and Latino kids uh, because they they often are from uh, neighborhoods in which there's a lot of of uh, a lot of dis- disruption and and being in a school with a strong shared culture can help them resist what I call the great downward suck of the streets. So I think Espinosa is is going to have an extremely positive effect for for racial justice just by making available to uh, vulnerable kids schools that have the qualities that they need. And of course, Dr. Glenn, some of your great contributions to the literature on school choice have been looking at looking internationally and asking this question, what can we learn from other countries? And uh, I think many, too many times um, people think that uh, the United States is somehow exceptional in the number of immigrant students we serve or in having um, populations that are comparatively less privileged. Of course, this is not the case. Yet when we look abroad, we do see many other countries that have much more robust systems of school choice where parents and students have have different opportunities than they have historically had here. Could you speak to us a little bit about what you've learned in your international studies and perhaps tell us about a place that you find particularly exciting? Well, I got involved in the international scene um, um, in part because a number of of of, um, of uh, European uh, countries have a higher proportion of immigrant children now than we do in their schools, and they wanted to learn what we had done in order to address the needs of those kids. So I wrote a book. I forget. Oh number of years ago, 15 years ago, perhaps, on how 12 countries educate immigrant children. But in the process of going around and visiting schools and talking with with the policymakers, I learned that in every country in Europe, uh, Italy is a partial, partial exception. I should say every country in Western Europe, government funds uh, faith-based schools on an equal basis with uh, with schools which are operated by local government or which 
which are secular in their character. Uh, the Netherlands is particularly striking in this because about two-thirds of all the children attend schools with a religious character. And yet, um, you know, the Netherlands is not famous for religious conflict or any of the kinds of things people want about. No, in fact, religious conflict was very powerful in the Netherlands in the 19th century. But in 1920, they um, uh, politically entered into what they called the pacification, which they said, we're going to stop fighting about Catholic schools, about Protestant schools, and so forth. Instead, we're going to treat everyone the same. Since then, 100 years, there has been, um, you know, uh, uh, no conflict about, about uh, schools of the kind that is so common in the United States. Now, that doesn't solve their issue with, with, uh, with immigrant kids, of course, and that's another discussion, but it, but it taught me, and I began then to collect information and wrote a number of books asking why was it that European countries were able to uh, come to agreements about these kinds of things, and why was the um, why did we have uniquely in the United States such a deep-rooted opposition? And and when I wrote a book a few years ago called The American Model of State and School, I looked at the fact that at the very time when when the Jim Crow laws were being were being implemented in the South at the end of end of Reconstruction, that is in the 1880s. Um, uh, and I'd written a book about the education of African Americans, so I was up on those things. At the very time that that those Jim Crow laws were being implemented, which were later struck down by the Brown decision of the Supreme Court, um, the 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 Republican uh, Party in the North, having abandoned the effort to to force equal rights for black uh, citizens in the South, needed a new issue. And the new issue was anti-Catholicism. And I discussed that, that at length. And it was that issue which led to the adoption in a number of states of these so-called Blaine Amendments, uh, which Espinoza has now in effect, struck down without doing it explicitly. Uh, and the the um, the exciting thing, what I've been hoping for, I've been involved as an expert witness in a number of cases attacking state Blaine amendments. What we're hoping for is sort of a brown decision in relation to discrimination on the basis of religion. Brown was about discrimination on the basis of race. Uh, well, religion is also a basis on which we are not supposed to discriminate. And in some ways, Espinoza is that brown decision for religion. And, and that's what makes it really exciting. It, yes, it is very exciting. But I'd, I'd like to ask you a question about, again, about how other countries deal with one of the major critiques of especially private school choice that continues in this country. And that is the argument that um, public funds should not go to religious schools that discriminate against children or teachers, uh, whether it's in admissions or in expulsion, on on the basis of, um, of the religious beliefs that a school might espouse. So today, for example, um, this, well, it 
it will be a couple days when once this podcast is released. But the Supreme Court came down upholding what is basically a ministerial exception that a religious organization has the has the right to make certain choices with regard to employment. Um, but we will probably continue uh, in this country to wrestle with questions of what protection students in private schools um, are due, especially if those schools participate in choice programs that use public money. Do we have any examples internationally that we can learn from? Yeah, there are a lot of court decisions internationally, in fact, in Spain and in in the UK and elsewhere. Um, In general, I think, you know, to generalize, um, courts have upheld the right of faith-based schools to choose their staff on the basis of their consistency with the educational mission of the school. Just as a Montessori school shouldn't be forced to hire a teacher who doesn't buy into Montessori methods. You know, that's, that ought to be a no-brainer. But generally, um, uh, the courts have held, if you're receiving pu- public funds, uh, you may give a preference for, for uh, let's say, Catholic kids in a Catholic school to, to a sufficient extent to retain the character of a Catholic school, which is, of course, a di- difficult thing to strike. But you may not simply turn kids down because they're not from Catholic families. That um, if you want to receive public funds, now obviously, and uh, you know, a, a yeshiva. I, uh, my most recent study was of the controversies about yeshiva, Jewish Orthodox Jewish schools in Europe, and uh, an Orthodox Jewish school which is not seeking public funds is quite free to to use its own standards of who they'll admit. For example, number of cases they won't admit a child if his father is Jewish, but his mother is not Jewish, because then to Orthodox Jews, he isn't considered Jewish. But, um, but, if, he's, but if the schools are sitting public funds, in effect, they have to be open uh, the way charter schools are on the basis of, of admission. The Guadalupe decision, the one that you mentioned, uh, applies to staff. And I think that's very important, because if, if uh, schools can't make decisions about staff based upon a buy-in to the mission of the school, uh, you might as well give up on the whole idea of diversity and choice. As you think about diversity and choice in classrooms, schools of education have played a tremendous role for over 100 years preparing men and women to become classroom instructors, whether it's public school, private, or hybrid. You're uh, a former education dean. What are the strengths and weaknesses of schools of ed in terms of supporting standards-based reform and parental choice? I was actually writing a book about uh, what's wrong with ed schools. <laughs> let, me, <laughs> let me be very brief. I've, I've interrupted writing it because I have too many friends I don't want to hurt. Uh, I, I think the strength of them is I think college kids do well if they're preparing for some kind of a gainful career. And I, I think at Boston University, one of the good things we did was every student uh, in the ed school preparing to be a teacher had to have a major in the College of Arts and Sciences. In other words, they couldn't be taking you know, history for educators. They had to take the regular history courses or 
Th- that I think is good. The, yeah. uh, and and many, many of the staff at these schools are very good in terms of, of, of helping uh, future teachers learn how to be effective teachers in the classroom. I think the great weakness of ed schools is that they, because they're located in universities, um, many ed school faculty have a sort of a, you know, anxiety about whether they're being taken seriously enough as scholars. And so they, they get into all kinds of, tie themselves in knots, trying to prove how scholarly and academic they are. And, and that has led to an awful lot of bad theory, it seems to me. Much of the bad theory that does so much harm in American education has its origins in ed school faculty who are trying to show how profound they are. Now, I'm being a little catty here, but, uh, but you know, I'm a great admirer of Edie Hirsch and others who, who emphasize the, the, uh, the way that the prevailing theories in education have often seriously led us astray. And I think partly that's just because sociologically, ed school professors are so anxious to prove that they're brilliant academics when they should be quite happy proving that they're very good at helping people be effective teachers. I have to say, as your former student, I agree wholeheartedly. And it was you that gave me the great advice to um, to go on and do the kinds of things I'm doing today and, and maybe revisit the idea of working at the university again at another time. And I appreciate that, Dr. Glenn. Yeah. Be- before we let you go, I'd, I'd really need to ask what has been, um, so we're in a, in a distressing moment in terms of um, the coronavirus pandemic. I am really curious to know, though, what's been the best part of um, quarantine for you? Well, um, I think the fact that we were able to arrange with two of my children that we would, in effect, create a bubble with them and their children, which has meant that we've, we've had actually, we've not felt at all isolated. We've felt very much, you know, close with our family and that's so important i feel really badly for children who have been without other children all this time we know some in that situation i feel very badly for for grandparents who haven't been able to be with their children and grandchildren we've been really blessed that way well very happy to hear it and thank you so much for spending this time with us today it is it, it is a great pleasure i think i speak for gerard as well i'm sure when i say it's long overdue to have had you on the podcast but wonderful to hear your voice and to be able to um for to for our listening audience to be able to learn about you and about your work. And um, they, they could try and read all of your books, but they're go- I'm going to have to, maybe, maybe only in quarantine will they have time to read everything that, that you've written. <laughs> so thank you so much. And we will speak soon, I hope. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Okay, we are back, and I've got the tweet of the week this week, Gerard. Um, This one from our friends at Choice Media, uh, and they've tweeted, Joe Biden tells NEA Teachers Union regarding his wife, if he's elected, 
you'll have an NEA member in the White House. So, wow, Um, Gerard, I'm just going to say here. So, listen, I think that teachers union have a really important role to play. We have talked about this before on this podcast. I'm, in fact, the board chair of the first unionized, um, the first charter school in the in the state of Massachusetts to be unionized by the Boston Teachers Union. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of my teachers for that. And I think that we're going to work better together because they have a union. I think it's a really good thing. But here's where I start to get scared. When, when, when politics, it's sort of like, here you go, let me just hand it over. When we know that, especially at the national level, there is such a political, um, agenda behind what the teachers unions are doing, including, um, I have to imagine they're not happy about the recent Espinoza decision, decision. teachers unions have, um, the, the national teachers unions have always been, um, well, Al Shanker was an early proponent of charter schools, but like mm-hmm. talking about private school choice has always been a non-starter. And in this moment when I think there's a lot of momentum around opening up choices for all folks to have a comment like this, that we're going to just, um, hand, hand, a, a uh, perhaps I, I'm reading this as you'll have, you'll have an ally and maybe a, maybe a cabinet position. I don't know, Gerard, what do you think of this comment by Joe Biden? It's understandable because it's politics as we know it. And what he's saying in a very unique way is that they have not had an NEA person in the White House for 12 years. Now, you think about the fact that President Obama was not initially endorsed by NEA. Um, They were more interested in Hillary. And yes, as time moved on, they supported him. But in an article that wrote... Oh, my goodness. I don't remember the uh, medium or the publication right now. But uh, in fact, it's the 74. And it was talking about Obama. Well, I went through the history of the NEA and their role with American presidents. Biden is doing what I expect him to do. Um, He's going to give a role, very strong voice to NEA. And let me say very clear, I grew up in a union home. I was a member of a union. And I know what unions do and what they've done to help build a working and middle class structure for many people in the United States. So I'm an anti-union. But I understand that NEA will have a lot of love. Uh, Maybe someone they will recommend will become the secretary of education when Biden puts together a a commission. I'm sure that some of their members will be appointed. But what will this mean for charter schools when he was vice president? President Obama was very strong on uh, charter schools. So was Secretary Arne Duncan, which is one of the reasons NEA was not a particular fan of that part of the administration. But I, I expect it. I'm not shocked. And for those who are listening, you see it for what it is. Yeah, you see it for what it is. And 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 in all fairness, it would be a pendulum swing were, were, were that to happen, right, from, from where we are now. But your point about the Obama administration and being able to strike a bit of a balance there, I think, is, is very well taken. So not to say that that balance can't be struck. We can, we can cross our fingers and wait and see. We're going to have a lot to talk about in the fall. We're also going to have a lot to talk about next week, Gerard. Uh, next week, we're going to be speaking with Megan Cox Gordon. She is the Wall Street Journal Children's Book Reviewer and author of The Enchanted Hour, The Miraculous Power of Reading Aloud in the Age of Distraction. Do you, do you like to read aloud? Do you still read aloud to your girls, Gerard, or are they past that? They're past that. Maybe I get an opportunity once every four months. No, they love reading to themselves. It's so nice, though. Yeah, we're cool for that. 
I know. I know. Well, and now like my 10 year old is reading books that I like really want to read along with her. And she's like, oh, mom, I'm not reading that out loud with you. Luckily, I've still got some little ones to I've got the, the littlest one still needs me. So we'll go from there. But excited to speak with Megan Cox Gordon next week. Gerard, um, I'll talk to you then. Talk to you then. 